Complete this sentence for me. In your head, if you, or if you're a Christian, start with this one. The one thing about Christianity that is most difficult for me is, what is it? Or maybe this one. If there's one thing that I would change, if I could, about being a Christian, it would be this. Maybe for some of you today, you're, you would say, I'm not a Christian yet. I'm kind of seeking and trying to figure out what I believe. Perhaps for you, you can finish this sentence. It's the one thing that makes it most difficult for me to become a Christian is what? See, sometimes when we think about these things and we think about our lives and we think of the life of faith, there's... I, I, I don't know how you would have completed that, but for some of you, maybe it's some of the teachings of Jesus. Maybe one of the things that you would change were, would be that it's so countercultural, it's difficult to live the faith. For some of you, maybe it's you have some questions that are hard to resolve. There's some things about God that you say, it just don't quite make sense, and I would change that if I could. Maybe for you, one of the things that's, that's difficult is that, or it, that you wrestle with is just the existence of pain and suffering. And you'd say, well, I wish when you become a Christian that you would no longer experience the hardships. In fact, pain and suffering is a thought that a lot of us kind of think about a lot. Even churches teach about it. And several years ago, I, I noticed, I used to get this thing, it was church bloopers. It would show you like church signs that they put on the side of the road or bulletins and, the, and how they'd have little bloopers in them. And, and one of them was this, it was a pastor teaching, it was a sermon series on pain and suffering. And it said, come and learn about pain and suffering. That was the announcement. And then right under it, it said, come early and listen to the choir rehearse. So our definition of pain and suffering may change. It might be a little different. But I know one of the things is we kind of want to wrestle with what is it that even in Christ, life isn't always easy. And sometimes it's not easy because of our life in Christ. You know, I was thinking about uh, last week was Easter. And so what makes a good post-Easter series? What is something that we should talk about? Because last week when we celebrated Easter, what we talked about and landed on was this big idea, this is the big idea that we took away, is if Jesus did rise, then we can believe who he said he was, we can trust what he said is true, and we can know that he accomplished his purpose, his mission. So if he did rise, it validates and vindicates his life, and we can trust everything about him, who he is, what he said, and what he did. And so when we're thinking of a post-Easter series, what we really landed on was how did the first Christians who believed this to be true, who saw it as truth, how did they live their lives in light of this? Because not only did they believe Jesus rose, but they believed that they experienced resurrected life, meaning spiritually they had died to their old selves and were resurrected with Christ with a whole new way of living. And so we decided, let's go back to the book of Acts, where we've been studying in it, instead of taking a break, because the early church, the first Christians, were living in light of this truth. They were saying, as resurrected people with a new identity, how do we live in light of a world that maybe doesn't embrace all of our teaching? How do we live when it's countercultural? 
How do we live even in light of the fact that we still experience hard times and pain and suffering? And maybe some of it is suffering because of our faith. And so we thought, what better place to go than to the book of Acts and to continue to learn how this looks to live out our identities in Christ. And and the question that we want to answer today is this. How does our identity as new creations or as Christians, how does that give us the strength to live faithfully in all situations? How does our new identity in Christ give us the strength to live faithfully in all situations, even with all the questions and unanswered things that we would love to change? So that's where we're going to go, and we're going to be in the book of Acts chapter 14 today. invite you to start finding your way there. And uh, before we even dive into the text, this is a section of the scripture that we're going to see a pattern repeated over and over again, and, and it's really what it looked like for the church to wrestle with this identity and live it out. And so in just a moment, I'm going to show you a video from our friends at the Bible Project. If you're not familiar with them, they've done a great job of giving a concise description of different books in the Bible and how they all point to Jesus. Uh, I believe deep that they do a great job and their theology is deep. I believe in everything that they've taught so far. I haven't found things that I go, oh, I'm not sure about that. And so I'm going to show you a few minute clip that's going to give a synopsis of what the book of Acts, where we're at in the book of Acts. And it is animated, but don't be mistaken and think, oh, that's because it's kid stuff. No, this is good theology here, and it's going to help you understand where we're at. So let's look at this clip from the Bible Project to help us understand what's going on in the book of Acts. During the first century, most people around the Mediterranean Sea lived in densely packed cities, all ruled by the Roman Empire. Each city was a diverse blend of cultures, ethnicities, and religions. And because of this, there were all sorts of temples for offering sacrifices to all sorts of gods, and each person had their own portfolio of gods that they gave their allegiance to. But in every city, you'd also find a minority group who wouldn't worship any gods but their own, the Israelites, also known as the Jews. They claimed that their God was the one true creator and king of the world. Now all these cities were connected by a network of roads built by the Roman Empire, and so it was easy to move around, to do business, and even spread new ideas. Now one person familiar with these roads was the Apostle Paul. He spent the second half of his life traveling from city to city, announcing that Israel's God had appointed a new king over the nations. This king wasn't like anyone who'd come before. Right. Most kings rule with aggression or power, but this new king rules with self-sacrifice and love. His name is Jesus, and Paul is his herald, who's inviting all people to live under this king's rule. The stories of Paul's travels and how people received this message, that's what the third part of Acts is all about. For some time, Paul's home base had been in the city of Antioch. And from there, he and his co-workers went out on three road trips, traveling by land and by sea to strategic cities throughout the empire. In each city, Paul's custom was to go first to the Jewish synagogue where his people gathered. He'd start teaching and showing how the Messianic king promised in the Hebrew scriptures is Jesus of Nazareth. And some believed this news, others didn't, and still others thought this message was so misleading and dangerous they would incite riots to kick Paul out of town. And so that's when Paul would take to the bustling city marketplace. He would set up shop there to make and sell leather tents to cover his travel expenses. And here, Paul kept sharing the news about the risen King Jesus with anybody who would listen. 
He was often misunderstood as just promoting a new god. One time he prayed for a sick person, they were healed, and everyone around thought he must be a Greek god that came down to visit them. But Paul insisted there's only one true god, and he was his servant. This message often stirred up opposition and more riots, and he got beaten, even thrown in jail. Why such a strong reaction? Well, the worship of the gods held together Roman culture. They believed the gods kept their cities safe, and the temple worship of the gods was a huge part of their economy. Paul wasn't just adding Jesus as a new god to the list. He was saying all other gods are powerless, even a sham. So he's undermining their way of life. Yes, and more than that. When Paul announced Jesus as a new king, he would call him Lord or Son of God, the very titles people use to refer to the emperor of Rome. So Paul's message could easily be heard as a threat against the entire political order. Why would anyone join this movement? I mean, it sounds dangerous. Well, people were captivated by the story of Jesus and how his love created communities where all people were treated as equals, regardless of ethnicity, gender, or economic status. These people formed new families that would eat together. They lived sacrificially and took care of their poor. They lived like Jesus actually was the king. Right. And so in every city where Paul announced the message about Jesus, people were being transformed by God's spirit to become new kinds of humans. So Paul would stay in that city and teach them the way of Jesus. And then he would leave for a new city. This was a difficult life. Paul had to endure a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. Yeah, and he did so because he believed that his own hardships were a reenactment of Jesus' suffering and death for others. He said it was God's own love that drove him to share the story of Jesus no matter the cost. All right. I kind of felt like busting out some popcorn or something when that's on there, right? Now, the Bible Project, again, if I, I encourage you. It's a nonprofit. They give free resources to churches or to anyone who's trying to explore the scriptures better. Highly recommend it if you're looking for somewhere to help you go deeper in a very concise way. So what we just saw there is this is a pattern we're going to be seeing throughout the book of Acts. As, as, and so let's jump into the book of Acts, chapter 14, and verse 1, and let's see what's going on here today. How do these Christians, how does their identity as new creations in Christ give them the strength to live faithfully? faithfully in every circumstance. Let's look at this. 14.1 says, In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together. They spoke in such a way that a large number of people believed, both Jews and Greeks. So again, what they're doing already is they go into the synagogues. In a synagogue, they would read a portion from what's called the Torah, uh, from the books of Moses, kind of the history in the Hebrew scriptures, and then they'd read from some of the prophets, the Nevi'im, and this would be, uh, as they looked at that, is the prophecies about a coming Messiah, and then they'd look at something from the writings, which is Psalms and Proverbs, they call that the Ketavim, so if you, in Hebrew, uh, they call the Bible the Tanakh, and it's just an acronym for the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketavim, so they look, they look at all those writings, they read from them each week, and then Paul would, then he would discuss them. So Paul and Barnabas would go in and say, hey, look at, in light of the resurrected Jesus, now look at these stories. If Jesus is the Messiah, look at how all of this fits together and makes sense. So that's what they would do as a habit, and what they find is a large number of Jews believed. Now look at that. It also says, and Greeks. So these were the non-Jews living in that area. Kind of interesting is that why are they even there? And I believe that these are the spiritually curious G Greeks, that they were interested in faith, and they were just trying to find what do they believe. You know, sometimes we think that 
we live in a world now where no one wants to believe in God. It, it seems like there's an increase of atheists, but I believe that actually, and maybe some of you would identify and say, I'm actually spiritually curious. I'm not sure what I believe. There's something out there. And that's kind of what we see. And as they hear how Jesus fill, fulfilled the Hebrew scriptures and made sense of it all, many of them started to believe. So that's what happens. Verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews are the ones who refused to believe the message, stirred up the minds of the Gentiles, and embittered them against the brothers. As I saw that, right away what we have in two verses, we have, look, everything's going well. Many people are starting to believe. The next verse, but some who didn't stirred up trouble, and it caused conflict. And the question I was kind of thinking about is, what is it about Jesus that causes opposition or conflict? What about that message? Because actually, sometimes when you look at the message of Jesus, he says, blessed are those who are humble. Blessed are the peacemakers. I tell you to love your enemies. Don't hate them. I mean, the, the message of Jesus and the ways of Jesus, sometimes you look at like, what's so offensive about that? Doesn't that feel like it's better for everyone? In fact, uh, there's a professor named Dr. David Flusser who's, who's passed quite a while ago, but he uh, did a lot. He's an Orthodox Jewish scholar who uh, taught at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. One of the reasons why uh, I went there to do postgraduate work is because of the work of Dr. David Flusser and the work into early Christianity and the life of Jesus. But as an Orthodox Jew, he said, I'm not a Christian, but he said this about Jesus. He said, I believe the content of Jesus' teachings and the approach he embraced always had the potential to change our world and prevent the greatest part of evil and suffering. So here's someone who didn't claim Jesus to be his God, but he said, I've long believed that if we truly embraced the ways and the words of Jesus, that it actually is good news for everyone, essentially is what he's saying, which I would affirm, I think he is right. But why then is there opposition? Why then do people sometimes, or are we opposed or even offended at Jesus' teaching? In fact, in the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 15, verse 12, there's a, a situation there where Jesus is teaching to the Pharisees, to the religious people, and they come to the disciples. Disciples tell Jesus, hey, Jesus, do you know the Pharisees are offended by your teaching? To which I could almost see Jesus smile and say like, yeah, sure. Yeah, I knew. <laughs> but what is it that can be offensive about the life of Jesus? And there's one thing here, or three things I want us to look at. I believe that Jesus confronts our pride, he confronts our preferences, and he confronts our power or our sources of power. Jesus will confront our pride, our preferences, and our power or our position of power. So when we have to actually come face to face with Jesus, all of a sudden we learn what is it like to actually be a servant, not to be served. How to be willing to give of myself for someone else rather than always need to be right and always to be, need to be justified and always need to be validated as a person. In Christ, he actually breaks down those walls. We talked about it a little bit last week. Same thing with preferences. This is the way I just, this is what I like. This is how I want to go through life. It's my worldview that makes sense. And for many of us, when we're looking for comfort and security, if you are anything like me, when there's unknown, when there's any sort of disagreement, when there's any sort of just instability, do you know who I trust most to handle it? Me. <laughs> I trust me the most because I got this. I can figure it out. 
My guess is many of you are similar. But in, with Jesus, there's, he calls me to the end of myself. He confronts that and says, is it possible that maybe you're not the Lord of this world? Is it possible that you can enter and trust me in this situation? Is it possible that you might not always be right? To which I say, mm, maybe. <laughs> no, often, God reminds me. So he confronts my own pride, my own preferences, and even my position or my power. When you look at why did the Jews oppose Jesus? Because all of a sudden they were thinking, if everyone starts to believe this teaching about Jesus, then it's going to take away from even our identity as people. When in Christ, he never said quit having a, a cultural identity of being Jewish. In fact, all the first followers were Jewish. But just understand, Jesus is the fulfillment of your scriptures. But they were afraid, what if we lose this? What if we lose the grip on who we are? To the Greeks, we saw in the video, so much of their system, their politics, their economics were based on the belief in these gods that they would serve and worship. If they were to believe in Jesus, they would lose a part of their even identity in, as their culture, and they would possibly, we'll see later in the book of Acts, some people will lose their financial gain as they made all their money on making idols that people would worship or the temple and the sacrificial system. You might lose your position politically if you truly embrace Jesus. So Jesus confronts those things in our lives that we find comfort and security in ourselves. And Jesus trusts, asks us to get to the end of ourselves and to trust him with those things. So he can be offensive because he calls us to trust him. So they face opposition. Verse 3, Therefore, this is how the disciples responded to the opposition. Therefore, they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. Isn't that interesting? They faced opposition, so they spent a long time there, speaking boldly. They didn't say, you know what? Forget it. You guys aren't listening. You, you're, you're lost cause. It's on you. I'm out. They spent a long time speaking boldly. Now here's the next part. With reliance upon the Lord. Who, and the Lord was testifying to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders. So even they had a unique season where signs and wonders were being performed so that people would say, wow, there's something more to this teaching. But they spoke boldly, but reliance upon the Lord. And this is one of the things, when that first question I asked you, how does our identity in Christ give us strength to live faithfully in every situation? Here's the first little thought. When our identity, when we find our strength in the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you are our identity in Christ, when we remember that our strength comes from the power of the Holy Spirit, we find the ability to live faithfully in every situation. It's not a mistake that it says reliance upon the Lord. Again, my default is reliance upon Ryan, on me, because I know what I need to do. But reliance upon the Holy Spirit, what a great challenge to all of us. Continue on. Oh, by the way, side note, notice too that they're preaching the word of his grace. Sometimes we feel opposition from people who don't believe, but if you're facing opposition, is it because of the word of God's grace or is it because of the word of your judgment? 
Is it the word of God's grace or your, the word of your politicizing of faith? Is it the word of God's grace or it's the word of you and how you think life should be? So sometimes opposition, we bring it upon ourselves. It has nothing to do with the message of Jesus. So if it has to do with the message of Jesus, let's keep tracking. So here we go, verse four. Still the people were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to treat them abusively and to stone them to death, they became aware of it and fled to other cities. So there was a time where they said, okay, these guys are about to kill us. Maybe we should go try a new town. So that is, there is a time when they left and they left. Okay, so that's the first section. Let's look at the next section. Verse 8, now they're in a town called Lystra. It's a very different story. In Lystra, a man was sitting whose feet were incapacitated. He'd been disabled from his mother's womb and never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, and Paul looked at him and saw that he had faith to be made well. And so Paul said with a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And the man leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice saying in their Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and came down to us. But Paul and Barnabas, uh, and they became calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes since he was a chief speaker. And moreover, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices to them. So here's the picture. Now they perform, they see this miracle and everyone's like, look, the gods have become like men and came down to us, and they're ready to, like, sacrifice bulls to them. I've traveled to a lot of places in the world. I've been able to teach in churches all over the world. No one's ever said, like, man, we're going to kill a bull for you. At one time in Africa, I preached at a church, and they gave me a live chicken afterwards. They go, here's your payment. And I'm, like, holding a chicken. That's but That was the closest thing, but... Um, I, I couldn't use it, but my host said, can I have that? I'm like, it's all yours. But so, I want you to see something really interesting here. Notice in the first story, it's as if the enemy of God was directly confronting the disciples. They taught the message of Jesus, and people opposed them directly. Notice this story. They're teaching the message of Jesus, and they're subtly twisting the truth. Notice what they say. The gods have become men and came down to us. Well, what's the good news? That God became man and came down to us. So it's very close to the truth. Paul and Barnabas were probably saying, look, this Jesus who resurrected, he was God, who became man, he came to us for you and for me. So that's the truth. And they took that and just twisted it a little bit. It's a subtle ploy to distract and deceive. It actually goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When a serpent is in the garden talking to Eve and said, did God really say what you think he said? And he gave him part of the truth, but not all of it. Some of the opposition and struggles that we face culturally, we wrestle with as Christians, what does it look like to hold on to truth? Because there's a fine line sometimes between the truth of God and just enough that we're off. And we find ourselves worshiping things that are not him. So I, the next thought here is the, the first one, you find your strength by reliance on God's word. The next thing is we find our strength when we're committed to God's truth and his whole truth. It's so easy in a subtle way. For one, here's an example. 
I believe that the grace of God is available to every single person. None of you in here, none of your family members, none of your crazy uncles, none of nobody that you know in your life is so far gone that they're out of the reach of the grace of God. None of you have out God's grace. Okay? Nobody. I want you to believe that now. There's no one who could walk into the room that we'd say, you know what? God's grace is not enough for you. That is a lie. So we believe that. We believe that to be true. But it's very easy then to say, so God doesn't really care at all about our holiness or our, the way we live. Now, it's his holiness he gives to us, but it's very easy for us to say, God's grace is so good that it just doesn't matter who we are and what, how we live. It's mostly true, but not all the way true. See, when we're committed to God's word, we see that the power of the Holy Spirit, he makes us into our new creation, our new self. He doesn't leave us living in our old selves, but it's so easy to say the truth is because of God's grace, then go ahead and live in your old self. That's not the truth of God. But it's so tempting to believe that, is it not? One of the hard things for me about Christianity is that Jesus is calling us to a life that doesn't fit with culture. One of the hard things is that there's some people who are never going to accept and believe the grace of God. If I could change that, I would. I would make everyone accept it and embrace it. But this isn't my way. It's God's. And it's so close to being truth that we can veer off so we want to be committed to God's whole truth. That's where we find our strength, even in opposition. So, they find their strength. They hear the gods have become like men. They go, Paul and Barnabas, they start calling Barnabas Zeus. Did anyone pick up on that? If you were ch- hanging out, Paul and Barnabas, do you think they had the conversation like, why do you get to be Zeus? Like, why am I Hermes? Seriously. Who even knows what Hermes looks like? Zeus is like yoked. And Hermes is a little messenger. I mean, seriously, I'd, I'd be mad. I'd be offended. Anyway, so they call him Barnabas and Zeus. I mean, they call him Zeus and Hermes. They say, no, 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 guys. You misunderstand. And then I want you to see what they do. They preach the good news to him. Verse 15, they say, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, preaching the gospel to you, to turn the you for you to turn from useless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that's in them. In past generations, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good to you and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Really what Paul's doing is he's given us the essence of the good news. Here's what he has in his message. He says, there is a living God who's created all of this. We all have a tendency to wander away from him. It's the second thing he said. All the nations have gone their own way. And three, he provides a way to be reconciled or brought back to him. Essentially, that's the good news. God's created the world perfectly. Number two, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so we have a tendency to wander. And three, he provides a way to know him The wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And Paul gives them that message, and I want you to see, he gives it in a culturally, uh, and he contextualizes it for them. He doesn't say, hey, you Greeks, this is how you need to understand it like us Jews understand it. In fact, a few weeks ago, my, uh, my son, one of my sons and I, we were kind of talking about 
past missionary movements, and he said one of the things he has frustration with is just the history of, of missionaries who go to other cultures, and not only do they bring the message of Jesus, which is fine, but then they would bring a westernized version of faith to these cultures and utterly change the culture. And so what we hear, and, and I was talking to him about, hey, modern missionary movement is very different. People have understood. We want you to understand Jesus in your cultural moment, and that's really what Paul and Barnabas are doing. In this case, they're not talking about the Hebrew scriptures. They're saying, here's what you do know. You do, you have this belief that the world's not the way it's meant to be, that all people have kind of wandered away. There's something that's gone awry. But there's a God who loves you and who wants to provide a way for you to know him. Paul even uses this language that in the church we call it common grace. He says, you've experienced goodness and good times and glad times and rain and harvest. You think that just happens? That's called the common grace of God sustaining humanity. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul writes this. He says that all people, uh, for, the, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that everyone's without excuse. In other words, what he's saying is, even if you don't know the name of Jesus, or you've never seen the Bible, God has revealed himself to us through creation. He's revealed himself, to, part of his character through relationships, through people, that we all kind of have this sense that there's this divine being out there. So he contextualizes, he preaches the good news. And now look at this, verse 19. But then Jews from Antioch and Iconium, several hundred miles away, they're finding about where Paul is going, and they came, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul with rocks and dragged him out of the city, thinking that he was dead. But the disciples stood around him. He got up and entered the city again. Do you picture this story? He just gave him the good news. He just said, the God who's created all of this loves you and wants you to know him. And what is the thanks he gets? Like, ah, we've heard enough of this message. Everyone grab a rock, let's go. Any of you who ever lived in an area with snow, maybe you've been the recipient of that same language, but everyone grab a snowball and get him. Yeah, that's kind of what they did, but just with rocks. I, was, I just said that to a surf community in San Diego. You're like, what do you mean, snowball? Okay, forget it. They all picked up rocks and they threw them to kill him and they drug him out of the city because they said, all right, we got rid of that brother. We're done with him. Good. Don't have to hear that Jesus stuff anymore. Whew, let's go back to worshiping Zeus. And Paul was drugged outside the city. The crowds must have been like, what just happened? The disciples are standing around Paul saying, uh, now What? I mean, he was Hermes. He was the speaker. What are we going to do now? And all of a sudden, Paul starts waking up. He sits up, a bloody mess to be sure. Paul looks around and says, where am I and how did I get here? Oh, you know, after you told the message of Jesus, yeah, they tried killing you. How many of us in here would say like, okay, uh, let's go somewhere else. <laughs> Time to go to a new beach town. <laughs> Paul's like, oh, no, they didn't. So he gets up. <laughs> he brushes off. 
And he says, I'm not done with them yet, and walks back into town. Now, if you were one of the people who thought you killed him, and you're in there, and you're, you know, hanging out with your, your buddies and having a beer, like, oh, we killed him. Remember when that guy came and we killed him, yeah, for preaching? And he walks back in. How is that <laughs> in a world that believes in the spiritual and supernatural? We don't hear what happened to a lot of them, but my guess is there was a come-to-Jesus moment for some of them. In this moment where they said, what is it that makes you so compelled to tell us this good news? That you came back. See, because Paul's worldview didn't say, if I suffer, then God must be against me. Paul's worldview rather said, if I suffer, then that God must want that to happen for a reason. And I'm going to find that reason. In fact, so much so that Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, he said, I count all things loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And I don't, I've considered all things lost, so I may gain Christ, that I may be found in him, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul says, I want to know Jesus in the fellowship of his sufferings. How many of us wake up in the morning and say, God, I just want to know you so much, I want to share in your sufferings. That is not a prayer I pray to the Lord very often. Never pray for humility, patience, or suffering, because he just might answer it. But he says, no, I want to know Christ so much to the point of even share in his sufferings because he suffered so much for me. I want to do that for others. Our teaching team, as we talked about this passage, we actually, I, I wrote down this quote and it's a conglomeration of some of our thoughts. So this quote, attribute it to our te your teaching team at Seacoast, but it says this, one's ability to endure suffering is contingent on your understanding of God's goodness. Your hard, our hardships pale in comparison to our identity that we have because of what God has done in Christ. See, Paul understood that who he was in Christ was what mattered most, and everything else was loss. Didn't matter. So he could endure. The rest of the story goes, and it says they preached the gospel there, made a, lot, a good many disciples, and they went back to every city they had been in, strengthening the church, praying for people, appointing leaders, and look all the way down at verse 27. They arrived back at Antioch. They gathered the church together. They began to report the, all the things that God has done and that he allowed them to open the door of faith for the Gentiles or all the nations. As the teaching team makes their, I mean, this uh, worship team makes their way back up, I want you to notice how it ends. See, it ends, and they, they see the church is still growing. It's still unstoppable. It's still thriving. And what do they report? The good news that many nations are coming to know Jesus. You know what's not in the report? Man, that was hard. Remember when Paul, they tried to kill him? Wasn't that crazy? That, I mean, maybe they had some of those stories, but that wasn't part of the story. It was, look at what God is doing. Matt, who's our young adult life group pastor, was on our teaching, and one of our teachers, he used the analogy, he's a hockey fan, so I'm working on him, I'm trying to get him to expand his horizons to real sports, but um, I can't say, we have our Canadian friends here who play hockey, and they, they know, they're, I know, give me the email later, I got it, but, so he had a hockey analogy for this, he said, you know, sometimes in a, in a hockey 
game match? What is it? I look at our Calgary friends. Okay, so there's a slap shot, and, and sometimes in the middle of the hockey game performance, they, uh, they hit the slap, <laughs> the slap shot, and your job if you're a defender is to not let that puck get to the goal, goalie. So there are times when you need to throw yourself in, middle, in front of that puck, and so it's coming at you at 120 miles an hour, and you dive in front of it. Why a lot of hockey players are missing teeth and brain cells and stuff. So, but, but they jump in front of it, and it might have changed, might have saved the game. But at the end of the game, when you win, no one says, oh, let's lift up our defender who jumped in front of the puck and did his job. What you do as a team, you say, oh, we won together. What I love about this story is what Paul did was pretty amazing, but that was Paul. He just did, he lived the identity that God gave him and the role that God gave him and the place he had. And they didn't celebrate Paul. They celebrated what God was doing. And that he displayed his role. And the other disciples did their role. So when we think of a story like this and even see hardships or persecution and all of this, just know some of you are thinking, that, that's never going to be me. I couldn't do that. Well, maybe God's not calling you to be the defender and throw yourself in front of the puck but he's calling you to be a part of the team of what he's doing to make his name known. And whatever hardships, struggles, questions, doubts we have, what holds it all together is that Jesus is the one who reigns above it all. It's not your ability to perform. It's his ability or it's his work that he already so I want to invite you to stand with me and I want to pray for you and we're going to sing one final song and we're going to proclaim that this is about King Jesus as our Lord and not any one of us needing to be Lord or King. So let me pray for you. God, we thank you so much in this place. I thank you that your movement has been unstoppable from the beginning. Even in the face of opposition, your church was unstoppable. God, even when Christians have been killed and, and, and martyred for their faith. It was unstoppable message. Because, Lord, you want to bring life to people. And that movement still continues to this day. So, Lord, would you bring life to us in this room? And for anyone who's here feeling unworthy, would you remind them that you're a God who makes them worthy? Anyone in here who feels filled with doubt, would you meet them in their doubt? God, anyone who feels like they couldn't be strong enough for you, not the kind of Christian you want them to be, remind them of who they are because of what you have done, and they're exactly who you want them to be. So would you meet us in this place, and Lord, as we proclaim that you reign above it all, would that just sink into our hearts, and you would reign above all of our fear, our doubts, our concerns, our worries, and you be Lord. We proclaim that now in this place, in Jesus' name.